Well, I wonder if you could turn up to that passage again in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I believe there's an outline uh, on the notice sheet for you. And I think some of the kids have got outlines as well. If that's a help to you, uh, do follow along uh, with it. I want us to start this morning as we come to God's Word by by thinking about the answer to a question. Uh, So the question is this. uh, What is the best thing about being a Christian? What is the best thing about being a Christian? You know, in other words, we're standing here, or I'm standing, you're sitting, standing here on the 50th anniversary of Hollywell. It's no longer free, is it? Hollywell Church. Um, I don't think that means you have to pay to come now. I don't think that's what it means. Uh, we're standing looking back, aren't we, at God's uh, faithfulness and goodness, and we're looking forward with, with hope. But what is it as we do that? What is the best thing about being a Christian? Well, let me start by telling you two things which it's not. That these, these are not the best things about being a Christian. The Christian life is not the best way to live because it's a guarantee against bad things happening to you. People sell the Christian life like that, don't they? You know, become a Christian and nothing bad will happen to you. All your dreams and aspirations will come true. But that's a terrible and wicked lie. Jesus never promises that living the Christian life is going to be easy. If you're a Christian this morning, bad things, difficult things, hard things will happen to you. Being a Christian is not a promise about never being unemployed or sick or hurt. Now, if you thought that's what the Christian life was about, there are enough stories in this room from the last 50 years to disprove that, aren't there? That's not the best thing about the Christian life because the truth is there is something better than even an easy life. But second thing, neither is the best thing about being a Christian that you you have a ticket to heaven for when you die whilst you just kind of carry on living life like the rest of the world. And maybe you thought that. I mean, Christians do at times think like that and live like that, don't they? And they wonder why their Christian life is miserable. But that they've missed the point. Being a Christian isn't something that begins at the point that you die. Rather, the Lord Jesus says, be, being a Christian, the Christian life is something that starts the moment that you trust in him. The best thing about the Christian life isn't simply that you hold a ticket to heaven for when you die. Rather, being a Christian should shape every moment of every day of your life as you live for the Lord Jesus. Now, what is the best thing about the Christian life? Well, as we look at Ephesians 1 this morning, I want us to see that the best thing about the Christian life, the thing that makes the Christian life brilliant, is not that it's easy. It's not simply that you get to heaven when you die. Rather, the best thing about Christian living is this, Jesus. Jesus, he is the best thing about being a Christian. It's what in his power and his glory, he's not simply done for you or me as an individual, but what the Lord Jesus has done for the universe as a whole, for what in his power and his majesty and his glory he has planned to do in all of the world and beyond. You know, the more and more I study the book of Ephesians and as a church in Egbeth in Liverpool, we're going through it at the moment. The more and more I study Ephesians, the more I am convinced that this is the central message of the book of Ephesians. It's that as you grasp the glory and the wonder and the majesty of the Lord Jesus, as you, as you understand that, not in a simply kind of cognitive with your brain understand it, but as you 
have that revealed to you and absorb that in your heart, at that moment you will be liberated to live for the glory of the Lord Jesus. As you grasp the greatness and the glory of Christ, you will walk in the ways of Christ. That's the book of Ephesians. And I want us to see that uh, together this morning, that this is the idea in chapter 1, that we are to to grasp in chapter 1 something of the greatness and the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus, that we might walk in his ways for him and to him. Now, these verses are pretty dense. You probably felt that as I, as I read them out to you. Verse 3 to 14 is just one single sentence in the Greek. And Paul in Ephesians loves long sentences. He would uh, fail his GCSE English if he were sitting it, not simply because he was writing in Greek, but also because he didn't use punctuation very well. There are loads of different ideas and concepts in Ephesians chapter 1. So before kind of trying to see that big idea and applying it, I, I want to explain three ideas in Ephesians 1, and then return to it to try and apply it. So here are three big ideas in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll explain them, and then we'll reread the passage, and hopefully it will be more clear to us. So there is a place, a plan, and a purpose in Ephesians 1. A place, a plan, and a purpose. Three points, all beginning with P. I learned that from Bruce Powell. A place, a place. Verse 3 of our passage, Paul introduces the idea of the heavenly places or heavenly realms, as the NIV puts it. Have a look at verse 3. What does he say? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. Gets another mention in verse 10. And then this idea of the heavenly realms gets repeated time and again through the letter. So much so that if you're going to understand Paul's point in Ephesians, you're going to have to understand what are the heavenly realms. So what can we say about them? Well, firstly, it's clear, isn't it, in verse 3, that the heavenly realms are spiritual rather than physical. This is not a place that you can call up on Google Maps, although the teenagers in our church have demonstrated to me that there is a place called Heavenly Places, somewhere in America. But that's not the point here. It's not a physical place. It's not a town that you can drive to. Instead, verse 3, it's the location of God the Father, the one who is, by definition, spirit, the one who is without a body, the one who no one has seen or can see. Moreover, it's the place where spiritual blessings are held for us. That is, blessings which are not material. So this is not Blessings of cars and houses and mobile phones, fancy clothes. It's spiritual realities, isn't it? Things that you can't see with your eyes. But despite the heavenly realms being spiritual like that, they are still very much real. So profoundly real that the second thing that you can see about them is though that you cannot see the heavenly realms, still they have a big impact on what you can see. Look, scan beyond our passage down to chapter 1, verse 20 which he exerted in Christ when he seated him uh, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Oh, you see here, this is where the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ is, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who crossed from the heavenly realms to this earth in the incarnation as he took on human flesh. And now, as a sign of the connection between these two places, has ascended in his physical body, to the place of spiritual realities from where he rules. 
And it's there in the heavenly realms that he gives Christians new spiritual life. So if you scan down chapter 2 verse 1, having been spiritually dead, we are now made spiritually alive with Christ. Seated with him where? Well, chapter 2 verse 6, in the heavenly places, heavenly realms. Even as we physically live our lives here. So it's a spiritual place. It's a place that you cannot see, yet it's a place which is intimately connected with what we can see. Thirdly, though, we're also told it's a place where not all things are well. There is conflict in the heavenly realms. So verse 10 in our passage, we're told by implication that there is disunity. Disunity in the heavenly realms, which the Father is working in Christ to bring to an end. In chapter 2, verse 2, we're told that it's from that place that the prince of the power of the air, the devil, is at work holding people captive, keeping them spiritually dead. Chapter 3, verse 10, tells us that it's in these heavenly realms that there are rulers and authorities who are ignorant of the plans of God. And chapter 6, verse 12, tells us, let's turn to chapter 6, verse 12, tells us it's a place of personal conflict in the life of the believer. What does Paul say? Chapter 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, as you listen to all this about the heavenly realms which you cannot see, but which are intimately connected, in which not all things are well, as you hear that, you might be thinking, that just sounds, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? In our kind of materialistic world, it sounds like an episode from Stranger Things. Did anyone watch Stranger Things? Where Will Byers gets trapped in the upside down? Don't worry if you don't know about that. But if you think about it, the idea of a spiritual reality called the heavenly realms, actually, if you pause to think about it, makes total sense, doesn't it? It explains why you and I can't simply be understood and explained by science. Why we know that we are more than just the bodies that we have. It explains too, doesn't it, why all through history and all around the world, people have believed in God or gods, in life beyond the grave. There is a consistent belief in the spiritual realms. That everyone in every place has understood that there's more to life than just our bodies. So much so that even my atheist friends often cannot bring themselves to say what they believe around the grave of a friend. Oh, they're in a better place, they say. So instinctively we know of the existence of a spiritual reality and more than that, the conflict in the heavenly realms explains, doesn't it, to us while we sat here, why the Christian life, although brilliant, is difficult. It's a hard life to live. explains why non-Christians aren't persuaded to become Christians simply by logical arguments. The idea of death and captivity in the spiritual places, in the heavenly realms, makes perfect sense that despite the overwhelming evidence of the truth of Scripture, the historicity of Jesus, the reliability of the resurrection, still people confronted even with those things won't even believe in the Lord Jesus then. Explains to you why you can't see God. Why no one has found the Lord Jesus in space exploration. And why there's still so much yet to see and experience about the power of the gospel. Because there is a spiritual, connected, yet still in conflict, heavenly place.
Secondly, a plan. A plan. So it's a place, a plan. Our, our passage this morning is full of this, isn't it? Uh, God the Father deciding and acting and planning and willing and choosing from his place in the heavenlies, even in eternity past, the Father choosing to enact a plan to save, to save a people for himself, to rescue them from the forces of evil and adopt them into his family. Now, on its own, that plan sounds almost incredible, just like a dream. But it's a plan which, although made in the heavenly realms in eternity past, is still seen in our physical world. Uh, Have a look down at verse 7. How do we see this plan that's made from eternity past in the heavenly places in concrete reality? Well, verse 7 is because it's accomplished through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Son, in human flesh, shedding his blood. You cannot get more real than blood. More physical. But the plan gets summarised in verses 9 and 10, which in some ways are right at the heart of the book of Ephesians. Let me read them to you. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Here it is the mysterious plan of God the Father from before the foundation of the world, explained and accomplished in the person of his Son shedding his blood on the cross. What is that plan? Well, it's not yet finally completed, is it? Because it's going to, we're still awaiting the fullness of time. But the plan is to unite all things together in Christ, bringing together in him things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, in Christ, God the Father is going to end the conflict in the heavenly places. The prince of the power of the air is going to be defeated. The cosmic battle with evil is going to be won in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as that is done, so too the battle on earth is going to be resolved. His people are going to be finally rescued, living with him, united to him. And the unity between the heavenly places and the earthly physical realities will come to pass as that plan is accomplished. So why isn't it when you turn to the book of Revelation and the visions of John in Revelation are not of the end of time of of people just being whisked up into heaven to live kind of bodiless existence on a cloud. No, rather in the final vision in uh, Revelation actually the heavenly realities come to earth. What is spiritual and invisible comes to this physical world as there is unity between the heavenly places and the earthly places, as we get to enjoy God forever and ever and ever in a physical and spiritual reality. But before we move on, just notice exactly who those are who are enjoying this. So look at verse 12 and verse 13. In verse 12, we notice it's, it's those who were first to hope in Christ. They get their share in it, don't they? In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Paul is is calling himself one of those. These are the Jews. The commonwealth of Israel, as it will get called in chapter 2, verse 12. Those who heard of the, the coming of the Christ. The Old Testament promises. And trusted in them. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Ruth, Esther. 
These people and people like them who trusted in God's plan revealed mysteriously in the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ show that they're part of this predestined people. But it's not just them, is it? Verse 13 is brilliant news for us. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. Having believed in him, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. This is now you also. This is the Gentile church. These are the nations who since they have heard of the Lord Jesus Christ, since they have heard the word of truth, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who died for sin, who rose to new life, who's ascended into the heavenly realms with a promise to return, having believed in him, demonstrate that they belong to this company of predestined people chosen before the foundation of the world. So the plan in Christ is not only to unite heavenly realities and the physical earth, but it's to end the conflict in both those places. Conflict between the forces of evil and the kingdom of light in the heavenly realms and conflict between people and nations here on earth as God calls his people from every corner of the globe. Not just Jews, not just Brits, but the nations. People from all sorts of different backgrounds and cultures uniting them together in the church, his bride. It's great to see loads of different nations represented this morning. That's one of the joys of coming back here and seeing how you guys are much more diverse than you were when I was here as a kid. That's great. A little reflection of Christ's work to bring unity, of gathering people from all nations to be part of his church, his bride. That's the plan. If, like me, you were a child of the 80s, or maybe you were just parenting in the 80s, uh, Saturday nights in a world before Strictly and the Bake Off, when Simon Cowell wasn't even famous, we used to watch a team of ex-Vietnam soldiers shoot people. Yeah, can you remember this? They were on the run from the military police, the A-team, and uh, they would shoot the bad guys. No one would ever die. I don't know how that actually happened, but it, it was the case. The A-team was made up of uh, Faceman, B.A., Murdoch. Anybody with me? None of you looking? Yes, okay. Great. And they were led by a guy called Hannibal. And Hannibal had that great phrase. Can anyone remember his great phrase? I love it when a plan comes together. Thank you, Malcolm. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) I love it when a plan comes together. That's what he would say. Well, look, here in Ephesians 1, it's not just the plan that's coming together. Instead, the plan is to bring everything together. You see that? Everything coming together in Christ. He is the one who will conquer the forces of evil in the heavenly realms and the one who will call his people from every nation and bring them together in perfect unity in him. The plan is to bring everything together. That's the plan. Finally, the purpose. The purpose. This is the other thing, isn't it? It's really clear in these verses. Notice that with me, it gets mentioned three times. The purpose. Look down at the beginning of verse 6. What does he say? To the praise of his glorious grace. Look at the end of verse 12. To be the praise of his glory. Finally, at the end of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Interestingly, as well, each time those three different mentions of the, the praise of his glory 
the purpose of which is working. They're each attached to a different person of the Trinity. So in verse 6, it's to the praise of the glorious planning and predestining work of the Father. In verse 12, it's to the praise and the glory of his Son, in whom all things are united and in whom God's people have always hoped. Finally, in verse 14, it's the praise and glory of the Spirit who now seals those who believe as a down payment, guaranteeing their promised inheritance. In other words, this this plan, this plan arrived at in the heavenly realms before even time began, accomplished in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This plan to bring a unity to all things is to the praise of his glory. It's that we might see how great God is. It's not hard, is it, to see just how that works. Imagine, this is a God who is so great, he not only makes the world with the word of his power, but also, even before making the world with the word of his power, even before then, has foreordained a plan to save people through the blood of his Son in the defeat of sin, death and the devil, through his own bloody death, he might rescue an undeserving people from every nation in the earth that they might sing in perfect praise to his glory, to the praise of his glory, Father, Son and Spirit. That is pretty awesome. I have four daughters And uh, I make plans to do things and they very rarely come to pass. Certainly not in the time that I would expect them to come to pass. It might be the same for you. You have plans for what you're going to do at Christmas. You have a plan for what you'd like to do on your birthday and it may or may not happen. But listen, this is God's awesome power and glory that before the world began, before he'd made the world, he had a plan to accomplish the praise of his glory in the person of his son ending the conflict in the spiritual places in the heavenly realms and on earth, a plan which is for the fullness of time, that every twist and turn of history is simply accomplishing his purpose in glory, achieving a plan that means every force of evil will finally be defeated, a plan that includes undeserving people who before They even did anything good or bad. God chose to save them. And chose to save them how? Well, as they freely respond to the gospel as they hear it. How does that work? Incredible, isn't it? That the moment that we believe, we then receive the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us, live in us, as a promise guaranteeing future glory. Praise God. He is glorious and gracious. He is powerful and wise. Praise God. So it is. There's the place, the heavenly realms. There's the plan, the plan to unite all things in Christ. And there's the purpose to the praise of his glory. But just as we finish, I want to reread verses 3 to 14, which hopefully now will be a little bit clearer, and then come to the question that we started with. So look down at your Bibles and let me reread. Verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, About 20 minutes ago, I can't remember, but I think it was about 20 minutes ago, I asked you what is the best thing about being a Christian? What is the best thing about the Christian life? And I told you that the best thing about the Christian life is not a promise of an easy life. It's not even simply a ticket to heaven for when you die. But that the best thing about living the Christian life is Jesus. Jesus is the best thing about living the Christian life. And Paul's big point, as I said at the beginning, is to expose you to the glory and the greatness of Christ. That's what he wants to do. That you might see how brilliant he is so that you might be fueled to live for him and walk with him. And hopefully that's clear in the passage because this place, this plan and this purpose are all articulated in Paul by Paul in relation to this amazing statement in verse 3. Look down at verse 3. What does Paul want you to know about this place, this plan, this purpose, this cosmic unifying Christ? What does he want you to know about him? Well, he wants you to know that in Christ you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Not necessarily with great health. Not necessarily with fabulous wealth. Not necessarily with all of your dreams coming true. But blessed in a much more profound, longer-lasting, life-transforming way than that. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In other words, if you're a Christian this morning, if you've heard the message of the Lord Jesus and you've believed in him, this is true for you, that you have everything you could ever need spiritually. Let me say that again and slowly because that's the point. If you are believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you have everything you could ever need spiritually. It's incredible, isn't it? There is nothing more that could be given to you spiritually. Your spiritual blessings are maxed. They are full to the brim, overflowing. And this isn't in some kind of weird experience of some guy in a white suit knocking you to the floor. No, these are real and tangible spiritual blessings which belong to us. They are ours in Christ, in the heavenly places, because Christ has given them to us in him. So what are they? What are they? Well, just look down at the passage. Walk through the passage with me and see them. 
Verse 4, what is the spiritual blessing in verse 4? We are holy and blameless. Imagine that. As sinners who do things wrong before God, still there is nothing, no guilt. In the heavenly realms, before God, we are completely holy and blameless. There's no terror for us in God's presence. Verse 5, we are chosen to be adopted into God's family. Amazing, isn't it, that God hasn't just kind of parked us off in the corner and given us a little seat in a corner of glory and said, well, all right then, you can sit over there, but just be quiet, will you? No, he's adopted us into his family. He's given us a seat at the family table. God is no longer a distant, far-off God, but a close-by, generous, heavenly Father. A Father who loves us like his own child. Verse 7, what else? We are redeemed. In other words, we've been rescued from the prince of the power of the air, brought back by God, and brought back at great cost, the cost of the physical life of his own son. And along with that redemption from the prince of the power of the air comes also our liberation from sin, the debt of justice that we owe for every wrong thing we've done. So spiritually we have nothing to pay, no debt hangs over us. We are free from that nagging feeling that we have to earn God's favour, make our good outweigh our bad, as if we could ever do that. No, we're redeemed freely by the Lord Jesus. Keeps going, doesn't it? Verse 7 and 8. We are a recipient of the riches of his grace which has lavished on us. No half measures, no stingy portions. This is only if you're good you'll get this. Instead, this is undeserved favour earned by the blood of the Lord Jesus, lavished on his people, heaped on us, so that spiritually we could not contain any more the riches of his grace given to us in a way that just leaves us overflowing. Verse 9, we know the mystery of his will. We know the mystery of his will. It's not to be sniffed at because the plans of God have been mysterious and unheard for generations but now have been made known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So not that we know in every moment of our lives exactly the purpose of God for me in that particular thing. We're not omniscient. Rather now we know that in all things God is at work for the purposes of his glory. He will not let me go because he is bringing me into this great unity in the Lord Jesus as he brings things in heaven and things on earth to unity in his Son. All things, even the little things in my life, are there as God accomplishes his cosmic plan that I am a part of. Then in verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. We are chosen heirs. If you look at the footnote in the NIV, it comes again, doesn't it, in verse 14, the guarantee of our inheritance. You know, we're not yet in full possession of it. Still, though, our names are on the will. And not just written in the blood of the Lord Jesus, as awesome as that is, but guaranteed to us now in the presence of the Spirit, verse 14, who remarkably lives in us as a seal of God's promise. All that is ours, sealed to us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So as Paul says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is ours in Christ. Now, there are no instructions in our passage this morning. There's no 
do this from our passage. Because that's not how Ephesians works. Paul is convinced, rather, that as you grasp the glory of Christ and all that he has done and all that he is doing, the one who has given us every spiritual blessing, as I understand that, I will then be empowered to walk with him, to trust him in every moment of every day, to fight sin, to live for godliness, to work hard. The only to do from our passage this morning is delight in Christ. Be bowled over by his power and his glory. So that whatever happens this week, maybe the doctor will phone you with some bad news this week. Maybe the boss will be grumpy and unreasonable again. Maybe the teachers will give you double homework in maths, which is the worst thing ever, isn't it? Maybe the bus won't turn up and leave you in the rain. Maybe actually the next 50 years of Hollywell Church will be particularly difficult. Well, the point of Ephesians 1 is that even in those moments, even then, I can know that I am holy, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, lavished with grace, knowing God, in possession of a glorious inheritance and full of the Holy Spirit. And that, brothers and sisters, is why the best thing about being a Christian is Jesus. Because those things are true. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Let me pray and then we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your plan in the Lord Jesus. The plan that was accomplished as he died on the cross. This plan to end the conflict in the heavenly realms, to bring unity on earth and bring heaven and earth together in him. Thank you that that plan for the praise of your glory includes people like us. As we hear this brilliant message about what Jesus is doing and put our trust in him, so too we can be part of what you're doing. Lord, we want to pray that you would fill our minds and our hearts with the wonder and the glory of the Lord Jesus, that through knowing him we'd be fueled to live for him, trusting him in every moment of every day, understanding what it is to be holy and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and lavished with grace, knowing your plan in possession of a glorious inheritance and full of the Spirit. And we pray this to the praise of your glory and grace. Amen.